The year 1953, a plane touches down at Smithies Airport in Sydney. On board is an American named Lee Gordon. The Australian music scene will never be the same again. From then until now, these are the stories. Hey there, this is Josh Ersam and you're listening to Awesome Aussie Songs. This episode is on Diana Trask, the first Australian female to break into the big time in the USA. We take a look at her remarkable career and one of her biggest hits, Oh Boy. Oh boy I can't explain, he haunts my mind, my Diana Trask is an entertainment trailblazer. She was the first female Australian to star on primetime television in America. She was nominated for a Grammy and is one of the few artists to cross over from jazz and pop to a successful career in country music. 18 of her singles made the Billboard country charts. As a songwriter, she wrote a US top 10 hit for the Osmond Brothers. And throughout her career, Diana's friends have included Frank Sinatra, Johnny Cash and Glenn Campbell. Fellow Oz music legends Olivia Newton-John and Helen Reddy would follow in her footsteps. Diana set off for America and she achieved considerable fame and success, as well as the respect of the all-time greats. Don't take our word for it, here's what Johnny Cash had to say about the girl from country Victoria with a voice that made the music world take notice. Thank you. Thank you very much. Right now I'd like you to meet a young lady from the Deep South, and I mean the Deep South. She comes all the way from Australia. And let me tell you, she's right here at home in Nashville. Miss Country Soul, Diana Trask. In 1958, even though she was aged just 18, Diana had already performed on several television programs in Melbourne. She won a TV talent quest and picked up £1,000 in prize money. She made her first recording on the W&G label, Going Steady. Although the single was a fine start, it wasn't a huge seller. The bright lights of Sydney called and she headed north, and what a decision it turned out to be. Australia's biggest promoter of the time, Lee Gordon, spotted Diana singing in a Darlinghurst nightclub and he became an instant fan. Before she knew it, Diana had signed a contract to perform on the Lee Gordon Big Show and was off touring New Zealand with American Stan Freeberg. There was this new um, club starting called Lee's. And they hired me on as the club singer. And Lee Gordon came in with a bunch of uh, artists that he was promoting, you know, well-known artists. And uh, he heard me and he asked me if I would like to be the Australian content on his shows. When she returned to Australia following the successful tour, Diana was greeted with the news that she was to share the stage with none other than Frank Sinatra. 
They told me Sinatra was coming and I'd be part of the show, Australian content. And I was, I was thrilled. Yeah. And then um, we did Melbourne and it was very sort of formal and all. And we went to Sydney and I got there to the old stadium. It was the old stadium. And I got there and uh, Frank's uh, manager came backstage about five minutes before I went on and said, look, you can't do my funny Valentine. Frank's going to do it tonight. And I just went, what? I haven't got anything else prepared. You know, what am I going to do? And he said, well, you'll have to talk to Frank. <laughs> so here am I, 17 years old, going and telling the superstar of the world, I'm sorry, you can't do that song. I want to do it. <laughs> so um, he was drinking his bourbon, you know, and I went up to him and I said, look, Mr. Sinatra, I'm sorry, but, you know, I have nothing else to do. If you want to do that song, fine, but I, I don't have any other song to sing. And, um, you know, and so he took a long swig of his bourbon and looked me up and down. And then he turned to his manager and he said, oh, let the kid do it. She probably does it better than me anyway. So I did it. <laughs> Concert promoter Lee Gordon brought music royalty to our shores. Louis Armstrong, Ella Fitzgerald, Nat King Cole, Little Richard, Buddy Holly and Johnny Cash, to name just a few of the stars he toured. However, he had a special relationship with Frank Sinatra, bringing the man known as the chairman of the board down to Australia three times. Showing their level of friendship, Sinatra was even Gordon's best man at his wedding in 1962. Sinatra was well known for his high demands and backstage volatility. So it was a gutsy move for Diana to ask Cranky Frankie not to sing one of his hits. Frank Sinatra was one of the most popular stars on the planet, and he just happened to be dating one of the most loved actresses of the time, Ava Gardner. To add to the media intrigue, Ava Gardner had previously been married to Sinatra, with the couple divorcing in 1953. The on-again, off-again relationship was definitely back on again, with the press and the paparazzi going crazy. 
It just so happened that the Hollywood starlet was in Australia filming the blockbuster movie On the Beach. Gardner's filming in Australia coincided with Frank's tour Down Under, and the world media followed. Like the modern-day mega-couples such as Kim and Kanye or Harry and Meghan, the relationship between Gardner and Sinatra was perfect fodder for the international tabloid media. A reported lover's tiff between Ava and Frank had the press going bonkers, and the search for the supposed other woman began. The media turned its spotlight to Diana. Oh, well, yes, he had, um, she was down there shooting on the beach, and apparently they had a big fight. And I was the only female that was around Frank at the time. So they decided that he and I were her number, which was really funny. <laughs> but um, anyway, yeah, there, there was a lot of mayhem and a lot of um, rubbish, you know, in the press. And they were just sort of stalking me and, oh, it was unbelievable. But, uh, you know, I was just a kid. I was like barely eight. I don't think I was 18, maybe 18. Yeah, I'd just come out of the convent. <laughs> I'd been a little convent girl. I came out of the convent and I was thrown into that. It was a bit of a drama, believe me. Lee Gordon also toured the American showbiz legend Semi Davis Jr. in 1959. And again, he added Diana to the star-studded tour. Diana was still undertaking her apprenticeship and paying her dues, but she was learning from the masters. That was a lesson. Yeah, I just stood in the wings of both of those guys and just watched and... uh... You know, my mouth fell on the ground because he was so good. You know who else was so helpful to me was uh, Nick and Cole's brother and his wife. They appeared on Channel 9, and they were very helpful to me too. Very helpful, you know, showing me things, teaching me stuff. And um, I think um, Frank, um, I mean, uh, Sammy Davis Jr.'s manager, I, I went on and opened up for Sammy, and I came off, and he grabbed me, and he, people were going crazy. And he said, get back out there. And he actually threw me back on the stage and said, you always take a second bow. You always take a second bow. So I, I learned. I learned. <laughs> Earning high praise from the best in the business, it gave Diana the confidence to believe that she could make the hugely daunting move to America. It was reported at the time that the Rat Pack had paid her way to the States, but that wasn't the case. Just more media speculation. Diana paid her own way, but she still had the support of her newfound showbiz mates. Yeah, well, it was really my idea to go to America. You know, I was always like, drilling all these people. What's it like? What do we have to do? I always wanted to go to America, you know, and when I won that money for Swallows Parade, that's what took me to America. I spent that to get myself to America. They helped me in, in ways over here that was sort of indiscernible. They, you know, they'd fill up the club and they'd, you know, they talk to the management and stuff like that in the background, you know. But um, basically, I got myself to America because I always wanted to come because I figured, you know, leave it to Beaver has to be real. I want to see it for myself. <laughs> that's, that's true, by the way. <laughs> when she arrived in the USA, Diana spent her first few weeks living in Sinatra's mansion and attending A-list celebrity parties. It was very scary, you know, because I, I mean... He would, uh, I, he wore me on his arm around a little bit, you, you know, I went to dinners and things with all of these huge stars and uh, they would grill me. Tony Curtis got me in the corner and grilled me about you know, Australia and what, what was I going to do and why was I here and I was very young, but um, really in a way I was Frank's, uh, kind of like his daughter because he was much older and, uh, but he was very kind to me. He was very, you know, honest with me and I think he, and he said to me one time, well, do you want help or do you want to do it on your own? And I said, I want to do it on my own because how else would I know? And he said, all right, all right, 
I won't do anything. You'll just, I'll just, you know, be in the background. So there it was. And I did call him a few times, yeah, as of when I needed something, yeah, he, and he would get it done. Lee Gordon was still doing his best to help Diana to break into the big time. I found him the perfect gentleman, and he was very, very kind to me. Very kind. And never, I never um, made me uncomfortable or, you know, he just seemed to just step back and let me happen. And, in fact, he put me together with uh, my New York agency eventually. So he was very interested in trying to promote me. He wanted me to be a star from Australia. So it was great. I think he had an affinity to me. He liked me and uh, he knew I was, you know, like very <laughs> just out of the convent sort of girl, you know. So he just sort of, he just um, put me with people that he thought would help me. That was really good. He was wonderful to me. Columbia Records' Mitch Miller was one of the most influential people in the American music industry in the 1950s and 60s. He too was won over by the teenager from country Victoria. Yeah, I did an interview, again, through that agency that Lee Gordon got me with. I uh, did an interview with uh, Mitch, and I sent him some tapes of me singing in Chicago, and he said, I'll let you know. They said, I'll let you know. The phone call came. I was in the hairdresser. I almost dropped dead. Mitch Miller wants to uh, see you and meet you. So I went along, and he was very nice, and he said, "Um, okay, I'd like to offer you a contract with Columbia Records to do an album together and see how we go. So (laughs) I was blown away. So we did it, and we did it in an old church down lower Manhattan, Um, and it was done live. There was no stopping the tracks or doing voiceover or anything. It was just the entire orchestra and myself live at once. That's the way they used to do it. And it's still it's still out there on the internet that 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 one I did, and it was beautifully done, beautifully done. After recording her debut album with Mitch Miller, he was impressed with her ability, and Miller offered Diana the opportunity to co-host a new program that was to be aired on the NBC network. He was celebrating with me on that, and he said, "Look, I'm doing this show um, soon. The television company has asked me, and I'd like you to be on it." He said, it's a sing-along show, and my heart sank. I went, sing-along? Oh, no. You know, that I used to do that in the Warburton Theatre, theater, you know, <laughs> between the movies. <laughs> so that's what I thought it was. But anyway, of course, it was a magic show, and uh, we went ahead and did our pilot. It got panned. Everyone said it was too schmaltzy and no good. Well, the thing was a huge hit, so that was a marvellous story. Sing-along with Mitch. In the modern era, it may not be the snappiest of television titles. However, the program was a huge success, dominating prime time in the US and around the world. Diana became the first Australian female to star in an international top-rating TV show. Yeah, well, I didn't know that till years later, but I was the first female that ever went on international television and reached that kind of stardom, the first one ever. So, yeah, but I didn't at the time think much of it. You know, I just sort of, as I said... Closed eyes on the, on the end of it, you know, see where it goes, see where I go. Through a starring role in Sing Along with Mitch, Diana Trass became a household name across America. Yeah, and the funny part about it is I really didn't do it for money. You know, I did it because I just, I figured my whole drive in life up to that point was, you know, I want everybody in Melbourne to know my name. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. That was my drive in life. 
And by the time I was 20, I'd done that. So whatever else came on, you know, so be it. <laughs> That's how I felt. I really didn't have any huge castle on the hill sort of deal. I just sort of thought, well, whatever happens, happens. You know, I'm going give it, to give it a good shot. Another big star of the time to mentor Diana was American comedian, actor and singer Danny Thomas. The one person who does, do, that I do remember was Danny Thomas. Years later, I worked at the Sands with Danny and Danny and I were a team. And we did wonderful business in, in Las Vegas. And um, he used to stand in the side wings and watch me. And then when I would walk off, he'd say, don't say, ladies and gentlemen, anymore. You're saying it too many times. Don't say it. No more. I never want to hear it again. So <laughs> things like that, you know. And uh, just, um, I don't know, they were in- inspirational. But he was, a great, he, was a, he was an inspiration of a man, really. Wonderful man. At the time, Diana was best known as a jazz singer. But as the pop music era emerged, Diana was able to swing. Here's one of her singles, Lover is Another Name for Fool. Lover is just another name for fool. Oh. I'm a lover and a fool. Oh. Now the tears are in my eyes. Ah. Just because I believe in all your lies. Ah. lies. Ah. Someone should have told me just what love is all about. No one. Despite all the trappings of fame, Diana longed to be surrounded by family and friends back home in Australia. It was pretty, pretty, pretty tough because I was very homesick for us at the time. Remember, I turned 19 all by myself in New York City. Not another soul, just me. <laughs> so there was, I was alone, you know, and um, I thought, well, you know, I'll just give it another go for a while and then I might go home. That's how I felt. But my parents were overseas and they came by, passed through New York and we got together. They said, do you want to come home? I said, no, I'm going to give it another year or so and see what happens, you know, and then I'll come home. So that's what I did. Nowadays, it's hard to imagine how isolated Australia was from the rest of the world with all the modern day communication devices like Skype, FaceTime and emails. In 1959, New York was a very long way from Warburton. Ah, oh, those phone calls were like over. You had to say, hello, mum, how are you doing? Over. And she could never get it. She'd be crying. <laughs> oh, it was terrible. Those phone calls were dreadful. <laughs> Diana recorded Walsh in Matilda, and the song quickly became an audience favourite with the Americans, despite the Yanks having no idea what a tucker bag or a jumbuck is. I was doing the song in Las Vegas at the time. Uh, and it was a standing ovation time. I would sing Walsy Matilda in a Las Vegas casino and people would be standing up with tears running down their face. You, you explain that one to me. <laughs> Once a jolly swag man camped by a billabong under the shade. Jump. 
Thanks to an invitation to return to Australia from Lee Gordon, Diana's homecoming was something to remember. That was brilliant. And, you know, Lee called me up. He said, guess what? I'm going to bring you home. I said, what? And it's a free ride. He said, I said, why? He said, um, I need someone for Pat Boone. I said, okay. I don't particularly like his singing, but I will definitely do it. So that was great. There was a lot of support. I mean, there was 3,000 people at the airport to meet me. So I guess that there was quite a lot of support. So it was unbelievable. And I thank every one of those souls. I really do every day. Thank you so much. Diana's family got to see firsthand how much she had developed as an entertainer. So my parents, you know, my family, my grandmother was sitting in the front row. She almost was yelling and screaming, that's my granddaughter. <laughs> it was so funny. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty, pretty unbelievable. I mean, my father was, he was just thrilled to death. You know, my father, he was just so proud. And um, my family were very, very supportive. You know, they were very happy. And what was even better, they let me do it. They let me go. They let me do it. So they had faith in me that I would be okay. Yeah. While living in America, Diana met and fell in love with her future husband, Tom Ewan. A businessman from Connecticut, Tom knew that marrying Diana anywhere in the USA would only create media mayhem. They made the decision to tie the knot in Australia, with the couple figuring a small wedding in Victoria was the way to go. Or so they thought. Hordes of media and thousands of fans flocked to the wedding to make it a day the likes the sleepy country town had never seen before. Yeah, it was unbelievable. The buses started driving, the video teams and crews started arriving at five o'clock in the morning and banging on the front door of the house. My father was not happy. And uh, it was an amazing event, really, totally amazing. Everyone was shocked, but um, it was great. I mean, That's what happens, isn't it? (laughs) Diana and Tom chose to raise their two sons in Australia. 
1965, she had her own variety television program, The Diana Trask Show. However, America and the continued success in the entertainment capital of the world was still something that drove her. What happened is we went to Australia and got married. I had my sons and uh, we sort of did the Die Trask show, which was successful in Australia, but we realised we, you know, we needed to do something else. We needed to, more expansion, more money, really, to live. So we came back to America and went back to New York and people said, Diana who? That's how quickly it was over. So we we just sort of, well, we thought about it and then Tom said to me, well, what about country music? I said, Hellbilly? And he said, look, Diana, he said, listen to it for a week and then give me your answer. So I listened and I didn't like the sound, but I loved the ideas. You know, I loved where it was coming from. So I said, okay, I'll give it a shot. Let's go. So we jumped in our camper and we headed down to Nashville with our two babies and uh, went to the Grand Ole Opry, signed with an agent. And six months later, I had a top 10 record in country music. The first song that saw Diana break into the Billboard country charts was Lock, Stock and Teardrops. The way you hurt me, it's a wonder I'm still here at all. Someday you wake up and you find yourself alone. Lock, Stock and Teardrops, I'll be gone. It's an open secret that the American country music industry is pretty much a closed shop to outsiders. Foreigners are not really welcomed, and as far as jazz or pop singers go, well, they need not bother. Diana has had to overcome all these obstacles. Yeah. Well, you know, I think what basically it goes back to being genuine. You know, I think um, I still love the ballads, and I do them nowadays a lot, you know, if I'm performing at all, and I'd certainly write a lot of those. But um, that's where my heart has always been. But there's plenty of ballads in country music and there's plenty of soul, man. They used to call me Miss Country Soul because I injected that somehow. And uh, people would say I was the first also uh, pop singer ever to cross over into country. I received quite a bit of resistance, actually, at first. And they didn't like a foreigner either, you know, that I was a foreigner. You know, yeah, I had to overcome that but. But now Keith Urban's doing all right, isn't he? <laughs> uh, it wasn't really till I started hooking up with some, you know, some of the big country music stars um, and going on tour with them that uh, I was accepted there in that, in that particular vernacular. In 1970, Diana was nominated for a Grammy Award for the Best Female Country Vocal Performance for a version of I Fall to Pieces, again showing the company she was now in. The eventual winner of the category was Tammy Wynette with Stand By Your Man. I 
Name stars that Diana toured with is a who's who of music, no less than Johnny Cash, Hank Williams Jr. and Glenn Campbell. Showing how well she was accepted by her fellow musicians, Glenn Campbell even wrote the liner notes on one of Diana's albums. The rhinestone cowboy even showed his support by appearing on stage, much to Diana's surprise. Yeah, we were in England and he actually was watching me do um, that song, uh, I Followed You to Texas, that one, I forgot the name um, and anyway, he moved on. He, he he walked on the stage. It was the duet originally, and he walked on and did the male part. Just cold. I was floored, but he walked on. The audience went insane. But um, he just walked on and did it. He said it's the best thing I've ever heard. So he just walked on. <laughs> it was terrific. The old saying goes that real recognises real, and it's fair to say that if the likes of Frank Sinatra and Glenn Campbell believe in your talents. You've certainly got something special. Yeah, I, I had done the first one. I followed you to Texas. I followed you to Utah. I, da, 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 da. So I moved on and I looked up and here he was. I followed you to Alabama. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> Just went straight. It was amazing. <laughs> and it was like it was supposed to be. The audience certainly got their money's worth that night. Yeah, they sure did. They went absolutely berserk. It was amazing. And it was an English crowd in, in Europe, in England, and they were kind of hard to crack, I thought, at first. But, boy, they went over the top that night. They mobbed us, actually, behind the backstage. Yeah. Diana appeared regularly on all the biggest TV shows of the time. Johnny Carson, Dinah Shaw, Merv Griffin and the Johnny Cash Show. Diana and Johnny had a special connection. Uh, JC? <laughs> He was a man. Yeah, he was a totally genuine man. Oh, yeah, he was great. He was just, there was something about him. He was just, I always used to say he's like an animal on stage. He just had that beat, that drive, you know, that people were mesmerized. And he was a good man, too, very good man. I mean, he was Indian, uh, extraction. He stood up for his race. Um, he loved everybody. He was the most beautiful man. I was in love with him, really. I'll tell you what, he had a beautiful wife and I had a beautiful husband, but if those two people had not been in place, I don't know. <laughs> um, we worked across the street in Vegas many years later and we were comparing some funny stories. It was really great. He was always a great guy and I admired him for his, you know, standing up for being for something, standing up. You know, I liked that a lot. Here's Diana performing a duet with the man in black. They are doing a song called Last Thing on My Mind. The recording was from the Johnny Cash show and was recorded in August 1969. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you so much. You sure sing great. Oh, thank you, John. It's a pleasure you know, to be here. You know, I was just thinking, you're from Melbourne, Australia, sitting here with an Arkansas traveler. And uh-huh. 
that's uh, about as far apart as the ends of the earth. You know? Just about, but here we are. Cotton to kangaroos. <laughs> <laughs> what do you say? Let's try a good country song. Okay, I'm ready. Oh yeah. It's a lesson too late for the learning Made of sand, made of sand In the wink of an eye my soul is turning In your hand, in your hand Are you going away with no word of farewell? Will there be not a trace? Could have loved you better, didn't mean to be unkind. You know it was the last thing on the mind. This episode focuses on one of Diana's biggest hits, Oh Boy, written by Tony Romeo. His biggest success on the pop charts came when he wrote the Partridge family's number one hit, I Think I Love You. Producer Jim Fogelson came across the demo of Oh Boy and suggested to Diana that she should record the song. Um, by Jim Fogelson, who was producing me at the time, he found it. And um, he said, I want you to go in and do this song. And I said, okay. So we did six songs that night and that was the last one. And we did it in like two takes, you know. And I said, oh, that's a pretty good song. I like that. He said, well, I'm going to work on it and I'll bring it out. I was working in Vegas. I'll bring it out and play, play it for you. I said, great. So he came out and he played it and it was, I don't know what he'd done. He just murdered the track. So I said, you know, Jim, I absolutely hate it. You've overproduced this. It's not It's not the way it's supposed to be. And my guitar player at the time who had been um, in the business a long time said, you know what, it's just so overproduced. It's not going to go. So Jim said, okay. And he took it back and he worked on it again and simplified it again. And we came out and we said, oh boy, and up she went. She went crazy. Once you've spoken your mind to someone as powerful as Frank Sinatra, letting a record producer know that you think he can do better was no big deal. Fogelson listened to what Diana had to say, and he went back to the drawing board. Well, yeah, I think we, we, you know, Jim came from a different, uh, he came from Sing Along With Mitch. He was one of the singers, actually. And uh, he, he was, like, new into country music, and he sort of had the New York touch, and that wasn't what was, what was needed. You know, wasn't what was needed. It needed to be simple and straightforward. And um, that's and we just told him that, and he was man enough to say, okay, go back and do it. And he did it, and it was great. He did it. Oh Boy has become one of Diana's most enduring songs. When she's on stage, Oh Boy really connects with her audience. It's still going. You know, I did a gig in Queensland, I don't know how many years ago, say about eight years ago, and I got up there, and everybody was singing it. They all knew the words. It's like, what? <laughs> That's pretty amazing. Performing Oh Boy is always a special moment for Diana. It feels like you can't believe it, you know. that. Um, but, you know, it sort of sings itself now. You know, it's sort of like the people want it, and they're with me in it, you know. So it's like it's, they do it, you know. It's, we're, we're both in communion, if you can understand that. 
you know, I've had that experience on, on stage before where I've actually sort of felt like I stood outside of my body and watched myself do it. And the crowd was singing it too. It was like um, a very strange feeling. But um, it feels like it's all automatic. You know, it's automatically in their brain, in mine, and we just have like a moment together, <laughs> sort of like that. The success Diana has had in both the jazz and country genres places her in a league of her own. And I'll tell you how confused everyone was because in Billboard, they tell me, I haven't seen this article, but they tell me that they nominated me as the top jazz singer and the top country singer at the same time. (laughs) So so how did that work? I don't know what that was, but pretty strange. Diana was now a country music star in the biggest market in the world. 18 of her singles made the Billboard country charts and she performed on such prestigious stages as the Grand Old Opry. There was no doubt in her ability as a singer. However, if anyone had any reservations as to whether Diana belonged in Nashville, they were silenced forever when she wrote, I Think About Your Loving. The song went on to become a smash hit for the Osmond Brothers. I didn't really write it for them. I wrote it for the four guys, the guys that used to back up um, my show when I was with Hank Jr. But um, I couldn't get to them. Their people wouldn't let me through. (laughs) The Osmonds got it and killed it, man. They absolutely killed it. So I, I, first time I heard that, I was riding along the road. I, I almost had an accident. I went right over into the ditch. It was so good. I couldn't believe what they did with it. So, yeah, songwriting is a joy. That's almost one of the best joys of all time, to have actually put your words in someone else's mind and heart. That's fabulous. What a, what a pleasure. What an honor that is. Yep. So I love songwriting. I wish I had have done more of it. I just didn't seem to ever have time. Here's Diana performing the song live on UK television with Irish star Val Dunican. So, Let's do it. Okay, we do the song. <laughs> I've lifted up the corners of my heart So that you can come into the warmest part And I have broken down Fences of my mind. I think about your loving all the time. And I have lifted up the corners of my heart so you can come. You can come into the warmest part. And I have broken down the fences of my mind. I'm just thinking about your loving all the time. I know we stand together. On the edge of something wonderful And we can shake or take it all away I know that love can hurt me Can really put me under But you don't find the real thing every day And I have lifted up The corners of my heart So you can come You can come Into the warmest part Prior to Diana, the only Australian female to achieve any real sustained success in America was opera singer Dame Nellie Melba, and her star shined brightly in the early 1900s. From Dame Nellie Melba to Diana Trask, their success was almost 50 years apart. However, Diana's pioneering efforts paved the way for Australian superstars to follow, such as Olivia Newton-John and Helen Reddy. 
Yeah, they came right up behind me, right exactly behind me. Olivia followed me into country music. It was so funny because, um, well, you know, good on them. And I was proud of them. Let me tell you, I was so proud of those girls. I told Olivia that. I'm so proud of you. Good girl. You know, good on you, mate. (laughs) It was terrific. Nowadays, with our musicians and actors dominating in so many areas in America, it's hard to imagine a time when Australia wasn't the flavour of the month. However, for Diana, she was lumped into the foreigner category and had to fight even harder for her success. Remember, this was almost 30 years before Hoag's encouraged the Yanks to throw another shrimp on the barbie. We were underdogs, you know, Australians. Who the hell is that? That was the thing. What the hell is Australia? You know, how many people are down there anyway? You know, don't they drink a lot of beer? And don't, what language do they speak? You know, it was, so that was the sort of thing you were getting. So <laughs> it, was, uh, it was an achievement to educate them, really, in a way. Showing Diana's level of fame, she was invited to sing before two American presidents, Lyndon Johnson and Gerald Ford. So how does a girl go from country Victoria to end up performing for not one but two American presidents? Oh, let's see. With Johnson, I was invited to sing at his ranch for some guests. And I went. I was at NBC doing sing-along at the time and they asked me to come down and do that. And he was lovely. I loved him. I loved Lady Bird. And then, um, let's see, Gerald Ford was the, I was uh, a guest performing at the um, uh, the dinner in Washington, the big journalist dinner, and I met him and his wife that night. Yeah, well, I did put my foot in my mouth there. I'll tell you a little story. We were at the cocktail party. I was with Roy Clark, part of his show at the time, and um, we're all dressed up and everything. And um, this aide runs up to me and he said, would you please have your photo taken right now with this gentleman and uh, I could see he had like a uniform on to me it looked like a sailing uniform you know and I don't know you American uniform still don't know even though my sons have been in the (laughs) service but anyway um I said well I don't generally have pictures taken with sailors (laughs) and this aide almost swallowed his teeth and I thought I thought um Roy Clark was going to drop dead on the spot and and uh, the guy uh, said um well, I guess that's I guess that's a pretty wise decision. He said, "I'm General Adam um, Zumwalt, the Joint Chief of Staff of the United States." <laughs> so I said, "Well, I'm terribly sorry." <laughs> we had the picture taken, but it was funny. Everybody died except Admiral Zumwalt and me. One of Diana's finest homecomings occurred when she sang the national anthem at the 1985 AFL Grand Final. She also performed Walsing Matilda live from the centre of the MCG. Diana's intro before she sang Walsing Matilda is pure gold and showed how proud she is to be an Australian. Thank you. Thank you so much. I can't tell you what this means to me, ladies and gentlemen, because I've sat up there in those stands as a little kid And uh, this is really a very special dream come true. And thank you so much for inviting me home. Thank you. In 1979, Diana was inducted into the Australian Country Music Hall of Fame. In all, Diana has released 33 singles, 16 studio albums and 6 compilation albums. Her autobiography is titled Whatever Happened to Diana Trask. The book and her CDs are available from dianatrask.com. Oh Boy was released in 1975 on ABC.Records and was recorded in Nashville. It reached number 10 in Australia, 21 in the US and number 14 in Canada. Okay, that's enough of the talk. Here's Oh Boy by Diana Trask. (laughs) 
for listening to awesome Aussie songs. Thanks to Diana for your time and thanks to Diana Trask for the music. Hi, this is Molly. You've just listened to a podcast brought to you by Marcos Promotions, written and produced by my dad, Sheldon the Kangaroo Kip. And presented by Josh Urson. This is Molly Kidd saying to my good friend, Holly Kirsten, hit it, girl. I know